I'm surprised for me to be here this evening. I was minding my own business. Thursday afternoon, about one o'clock or so, Julie called me, Zach's wife. Said, Zach is very sick. Can you speak this weekend? That means you will speak this weekend. I said, of course, anything I can do to help out. <clears throat> but I said, did he ask for me? Yes, he asked for you. I says, well, how did he say it? <laughs> she said, <laughs> so in my moment of panic, I said, I know what I'm going to do. I am going to straighten out the Mark Dolan sermon. <laughs> How many of you remember that sermon? Okay. I'm going to tell the truth. The whole truth. Nothing but the truth. He who states his case first seems right. Until the other comes and examines him. It's been interesting for me the past uh, few weeks, now that I've become Mark's brother. You didn't get, if you weren't here for that sermon, you'll have to get it. He's it's still available out there. Now, he told the story about the monkeys in the zoo. Remember that? So I've been pestered. I've been pestered about this story. They said, is the monkey story true? And I said, I don't know. Because I might have been over letting out the lions when that happened. But I asked my mother about it. And she said, it's true. Now I believe her. Because she's usually in denial about these kinds of things. So my wife Irma went to a Hope Academy teachers meeting. And she was surrounded by a bunch of people and said, oh, so Kurt was so humane. I mean, he wouldn't kick uh, the dog, but he would kick Mark. Right? I'm so humane. Kick Mark, not the dog. And then my poor wife besieged how could Kurt have tortured Mark so? Because he didn't mention any names, the only brother that you know is me. Now, how many of you have been guilty of bad thoughts about me? Mars. Mars admits it. So I figured I, I'm going to have to talk to Mark about this. So last night I went to his office, which is just right next door to mine. And he's preparing for junior high camp. So it's filled with his little henchmen. So I have witnesses. And I said, Mark, can you recall one incident when I kicked you? I have him on the shoulder, right? Ten people standing around. He thought really hard. He said, you must have. Yeah. I said, but can you tell me one specific time when I personally kicked you? He couldn't think of any, ladies and gentlemen. 
I said, can you remember one time, just once, when I tied you to a tree? When I locked you in the closet? Or when I tried to drown you? He can't think of any, ladies and gentlemen. But he says, you did hold the rope one time. I said, that's true. I did hold the rope once. But then I asked him, who do you think the brothers tortured before you were born? He's baby brother. Okay? He's seven of eight. I'm four of eight. Okay? So we were thankful. I was thankful that Mark was born because my mantle passed to him. So I always had a small bit of compassion for him. In fact, he mentions one time when I showed him some compassion. <laughs> you know how kids can be, make fun of you all the time about everything. You know how it is. So my brothers were sitting around making fun of Mark, as usual. So Mark remembers this. I don't remember it. But he says that I came over and put my arm on him and said, Mark, does it hurt your feelings that they're picking on you? <laughs> and Mark said, I have no feelings. <laughs> He said, she was sitting up there in the office, he said, feelings are like a sponge. Oh. But he says, I remember telling you this, all I have is a little black stone. <laughs> <laughs> Poor guy. <laughs> it was terrible. But see, it was Tony who electrified the pool. <laughs> we had a doughboy pool. Tony was a genius. So somehow he electrified it and the metal rim on it, whenever you touched it. <laughs> so it was a lot of fun to invite friends over and say, go look at the pool. But it, it wasn't too funny when we went out there one time and saw one of my mom's friends stuck to it. <laughs> and we had, we did have, uh, I did say Mark, now I did throw Bernie on you. Bernie. I don't know, we got it at 4th of July stores. It's sort of this carbide stuff you put in cannons, but we discovered through experimentation that it chemically reacted with water and gave off an excruciating burning sensation. We were too little to know what it was, so we called it Bernie. <laughs> so you take it and you sprinkle on wet bodies and it sizzles. But everybody had Bernie. It was fair play. So you'd be in the pool having a good time, all of a sudden, ah! So I had to tell Mark a couple stories of my own because, you know, I just keep it to myself. One of my earliest memories, I was born in Santa Monica, St. John's Hospital. We lived in Santa Monica for a few years until we moved to Venice when I was four. So I, I have distinct memories before and after because I know we moved there when four, so anything before moving into Venice had to be before I was four. So, one of the distinct memories that I have of Santa Monica is a screened-in back porch. My brothers are there, Tony, Carl, Chris, okay? And they had the, the old ant poison sprayers. They sort of look like a, a bicycle pump, and they got the little glass uh, a jar. It's like this, right? They told me it was ghost food. 
Now, I got to be three years old. And I got my lips pursed. And they're trying to get me to open my lips so I could have ghost food. And they're going, it's good. And I'm thinking, I'm only three, but this can't be good. Okay. <laughs> open your mouth. It's good as ghost food. Finally, peer pressure wins out. Wore me down mentally. I open my mouth. Next thing I know, I'm having my stomach pumped. They knew me at the hospital over the years. It's Kurt. He's here to have his stomach pumped again. Now, I'm five years older than Mark, which means that when he was six, I was... 11. Now, when you're 11 years old, in the good old days, you became a Boy Scout. Yeah. Me, I, on my own, went and signed up for the Boy Scouts. <laughs> because I sort of lived my own separate life from my other brothers. It's part of what peer socialization does. When they separate you and put you in classrooms all separated by yourself, you develop your own little world of friends. And I had my own interests and my own things that I wanted to do. And I wanted to hike and I wanted to go camping and I wanted to go fishing and things like that. So I joined the Boy Scouts. Now, they'd make fun of me because you wore those silly uniforms, those big green socks that no one ever wore with those little red things on them. They were hideous. But I didn't care. Right? I didn't care. I didn't care what they thought about me because I'm going fishing, hiking, camping. I'm learning outdoor crafts. I'm having a great time. And I'd already grown accustomed to verbal abuse by this time. And I didn't care if they made fun of my Boy Scout uniform. And I'm not bitter about it. I went places, met people, did things with the Boy Scouts that my brothers would only dream about while they're sitting around complaining. I have a scripture verse at the top of your handout. You'll notice that's all that's there. Because I want to remind you of a couple things. In Revelation 19.10, the end of the verse, it's a little story about John, who was about to worship this angelic being, angelic-like being. John, the book of Revelation. At this I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, Don't do it. I'm a fellow servant with you and with your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now, many of us here have a testimony of Jesus, of what Jesus has done in our life, of who Jesus is. Because there's a time and a place that we can point to when we met Jesus. Now sometimes you say, I was, I was raised in church, I've always been a Christian. But there is a time that you know when Christ became more than just a storybook personality to where He came alive and real and had a lasting impact in your life. Now it's the spirit of prophecy. So I want to prophesy to you today. Now, the reason it's the spirit of prophecy is because when you tell somebody about Jesus, you know their future. You know where they will spend eternity depending upon what they do with the testimony about Jesus. Don't we? I know the future. Why? It's right here in the book. Okay? I've read the end of the book. I know how it turns out. Praise God. I, I'm going to be a part of the happy ending in this book. 
because of the testimony of Jesus. So what I thought I'd do for a few minutes is just give a little testimony about what Jesus has done in my life, some of the places I've been, and what it took for God to really save me. Now, God has been at work in many generations, hasn't He? God's been working all over in many nations, tribes, tongues, and peoples. This is not a fad that we're a part of. This is not a passing fancy. God has been touching people's lives for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. That's just history. So when you come to Christ, even when John writes the book of Revelation 2,000 years ago, he's talking about what Jesus meant in his life. You study history. You cannot study Western civilization without discovering person after person after person that's had a living experience with Jesus the Christ. This is not some unusual thing that God should touch a person's life and make Jesus come alive to them through His Spirit. There's millions upon millions upon millions of people who have been touched. In fact, they do polls all the time, don't they? One back in 1986 showed that Christianity is the largest religion in the world, twice as much as its nearest competitor. Which tells us that God is in the business of coming into our history and touching people's lives. Okay? And ordinary folk, just like regular folk. In fact, St. Francis, remember him? He studied his life. What an incredible guy he was. He was a party animal. <laughs> Went to church his whole life, but it didn't do him any good until he met Jesus. And that changed his life. And the influence that Christ had on his life was turned around and Francis influenced his world of that particular time. And we want to remember what Jesus has done in our life. Because sometimes it becomes a little ho-hum, doesn't it? Ho-hum, church again. What are you doing tonight? Church again. It's good that you're here. Peter writes in 2 Peter talks about coming to know Jesus. He says, For this reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, goodness, knowledge, knowledge, self-control, self-control, perseverance, perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly love, and to brotherly kindness, oh, brotherly kindness and to brotherly kindness, love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus. Now listen to verse 9 if you're there. 2 Peter 1.9 But if anyone does not have them, he is nearsighted and blind and has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past sins. The testimony of Jesus is the forgiveness of sins. Now, the chance is that somewhere along the way that the glory of that forgiveness of sins gets a little tarnished, gets a little set aside, and you forget the day, the hour, the moment. You forget what God has done for you. You forget what Christ has meant to you. So what we want to do tonight is to dust it off a little bit and to put Jesus back again and just try and remember that moment, that time, that hour when Christ first came into your life. Now, I was raised in a good Catholic home. I was born in St. John's Hospital, which is a Catholic hospital. And I was baptized 
month after, First Holy Communion, confirmed. It's an altar boy. Altar boy of the year, 1965. Now, sometimes when you tell a testimony, people get a little bit upset. But this is my perception of reality. This doesn't even mean it has to be real. It's just the way I perceive things. Are you with me? Okay. It's just the way I saw things in my little brain. Whenever they had a special mass, they called me because I could do the incense just right. And I was very proud of that. It was a tremendous accomplishment. We had church every Sunday, fish sticks every Friday. Now, I hate fish sticks. 1965, they said, you no longer are required to eat fish. Okay? I was very happy about that. I still can't eat them to this day. Ever since they, they, uh, they lifted the ban, I never ate them again. Now, as I said before, I was a Boy Scout. I liked the outdoors, camping, hiking, all those sorts of things. And in the Boy Scouts, I learned how to cook. So I actually was the family cook for the Mark's formative years. <laughs> Cooking merit badge. This, it was survival of the fittest on my part because I knew how to cook, so I'd cook my own food. And the problem is, the older brothers would eat it. <laughs> the only way to prevent older brothers from eating my dinner is to make enough for everybody. So that was my habit for the four years I was in high school until I went, went to college. So I, I sort of led an independent and separate life from my older brothers in, this, in those ways. And when I went into high school, Catholic high school, I was in the water polo team, swim team, water polo captain, things like that. Now, it was one of the guys on my water polo team who actually introduced me to pot. So it doesn't take a lot of people to corrupt you. All right? It doesn't take a lot of people to lead you astray. It takes one person. It took one person to lead me astray. Now, back in those days, marijuana was a severe crime. In Texas, it was a capital offense. Huh? Okay, it was a big deal. So this friend of mine gave me 10 marijuana seeds and me, like Jack and the Beanstalk. <laughs> I went home, dug a little hole, threw them in the ground, covered it over, and lo and behold, one popped up. So I watered it and nurtured it. Kept growing, growing every day. Come home, school, look at it. First it's knee high, belt high, head high. It's big. Yeah. A little Christmas tree. <laughs> I was very successful. And it dawned on me that what you're supposed to do with this is smoke it. So I harvested it, dried it out, and it filled up this entire shopping bag full of marijuana. And so I, the outsider, had now become very popular. <laughs> Kurt, come to my party and bring your bag. Jing, jing, jing. Kurt, come to my party. Bring your bag. We're going to have a purple tornado. That's sort of, because uh, my mom always listened in on the phone, so you have to say, you couldn't say, we're having a party. You have to say, we're having a purple tornado or something. See? <laughs> so, 
you know how one thing leads to another, they say it doesn't, but it does. I knew that people said one thing leads to another, but I didn't believe them, but one thing leads to another, and pretty soon you graduate from marijuana to all sorts of pills, and we began taking mescaline and psilocybin and LSD and all sorts of things like that. So I'm leading this double life, this, this Eagle Scout. <laughs> I'm by now an Eagle Scout. I've risen up to leadership positions in our whole entire district. I'm going to national jamborees. I got lost at the national jamboree because I was so high one time. Now, this is really sad, actually. It's kind of comical now, looking back at it, but it's actually a very sad snare of, of the devil, very damaging. And I'm so glad for the testimony of Jesus that it saved me from that. Very, very happy about it. So, so I graduated from high school when I was 17, went up to Humboldt State University in Northern California. The freedom was way too much for me. No one to tell me what to do, no one to tell me where to go, when to get up. And there's just the wrong kind of people up there. So we would take acid before class, 45 minutes later, out the back door into the woods, these huge, massive redwood forests, which were great. We'd walk through there thinking, we're the hobbits. <laughs> thinking great thoughts, like we are a drop on the leaf of life. <laughs> Heavy philosophical thoughts. <laughs> Then uh, Guru Maharishi Baloney came in, <laughs> sold you a mantra for 35 bucks, so I bought one. Part of the mantra routine is that they take you, they, they screen you for a little bit, and they take you in this dark room, and you got to take these flowers in there, and you, we knelt down by this idol, and they gave you these little prayers to say in some foreign language. And then they set you in a room to meditate all by yourself, and you call on this word, which is really a demonic spirit. Okay? It's a demonic name of a demonic spirit. But it was kind of euphoric, so that was, that was kind of cool. But at this time, in the early 70s, late 60s, graduated from high school in 69, went up there in 70, 71, is towards the, the end of the Vietnam War, the Kent State shooting. We shut down our entire school. We figured that burning draft cards wasn't bad enough, so we piled ours together and mailed them back. <laughs> <laughs> and then finally, we just had it with the ritual of school and the ritual of society and the whole hippie mentality and the anti-establishment rhetoric finally just took root and my good friend and I bought a 1943 army ambulance, painted it metallic blue so it would sparkle. We outfitted it and drove it to the jungles of Costa Rica. We were going to surf. We were going to skin dive. We were going to be free. We were going to live like Gilligan. <laughs> For some reason in high school, I always thought that if I could get to Acapulco, that I would find something, that I would know something, that I could feel something, or I would just 
find some purpose or whatever it was. So we got to Acapulco and it's beautiful and the waves are big and there's just tremendous lightning storms in the afternoon, but no switches went on in me. It was like, this is it. Here, it's where I wanted to be. This is where I thought I needed to be in order to feel something that I needed to feel. So we kept going down further, went through uh, Guatemala and El Salvador and Honduras, Nicaragua, finally into Costa Rica, which is a beautiful country back in those days, uh, 1971, early 1972. And we found this deserted beach on the other side of the Rio Barranca. And the jungle came down to the beach and there's a big sheer cliff on the other side and a point break here for surfing. It was absolute paradise. Coconut trees, palm trees, warm weather, water perfectly clean, no one else out on the waves. It was just unbelievable. We set up a little shack, lived like Gilligan there. It was just great. It was everything that I expected and everything that I wanted it to be. So we eventually took some excursions through the country in our four-wheel drive army ambulance. We drove up to the, to the center part of the country where there's, you know, there's a back, there's, Costa Rica has a volcano running down the backbone of the country. And up there it's nice and cool and they grow coffee and things like that. And then we circled down almost to Panama and worked our way back up the coast on this sort of virgin jungle safari kind of thing. Just surfing as we went, just driving up through the mountains and, and whatnot. Uh, one time we finally got back to our little base camp outside of Punta Arenas and we decided we we're going to go over Costa Rica to the Caribbean side to Limon. So uh, we go over, take the hitchhike up, take the train over, we go to Limon. Now Limon is, is gorgeous. It's sort of uh, like Bahama style thing. And we are going to go body surfing because we didn't take our surfboards with us. So we have all of our fins. We're outside of town. There's this beautiful bay there, and there's this huge point break with giant waves. So Mario and I decided we're going to go over there and go body surfing. So we're having a great time. Just having a blast, right? But we noticed that all the local people are inside the bay, sort of close to the beach where the waves are a lot smaller, and we could never figure out why are they inside the smaller waves when out here is where you ought to be. So this sort of winds changed, you know, tides, and so we came in, that flattened out, and we asked them, we said, how come you guys aren't out there where the big waves are? And they said, oh, there's too many sharks. <laughs> oh, thanks. We were out there like shark chum. <laughs> so there was an American we met over there on the train on the way down who posed himself as a Green Beret and said that if we would put him up for the weekend and take care of him, then on Monday he'd go to the bank and pay us back. And being the kind, generous people we were, said, fine, there's no problem. You stay with us and we'll take care of it Monday. So Monday came and he, we got up and went body surfing. <laughs> Lord spared our lives, didn't know it. Came back and he had stolen everything. He'd taken everything we had, my camera, all of our money, everything that was in the room, and vanished. The only thing I had was one little traveler check in my pocket, which was just enough to pay for the hotel room and the train ticket back to San Jose, which is the capital city of, of Costa Rica. And then we hitchhiked down to our little beach with not a penny in our pocket. So this was, it only cost you a nickel for a bottle of milk. So we go in and look at the bottle of milk. 
if only we had a nickel. I mean, you get a complete meal down there, you know, for a buck. But what we did was we sold a bunch of stuff and got some money so that, you know, we could keep ourselves in beer and things like that. <laughs> they had this, they had this rum that they made out of some kind of cane that was sort of like kerosene, but it was very cheap. And it was, it actually was to our benefit that we used to while away our hours down there at Manuel's saloon because we met the commandant of Punta Arenas there. And he was sort of uh, our little bit of a friend. Because when we got thrown in jail, <laughs> they suspected us of being drug smugglers. Me. <laughs> Impossible. So anyway, they threw us in jail. It's just penitentiary. It's got barbed wire all around it, big turrets, guys with submachine guns. and the whole thing. There's no way to escape. It was just a very terrible experience. So I kept asking, is there any way that like, we can contact like, an American embassy of some sort? No, you can't do that. You're, you know, we're in there Monday and Saturday. They're saying, you're going to go up to San Jose Penitentiary, and everybody up there is homosexual. And we're going, that is not for us. <laughs> so they also said they had this like death island or something. We said, we would prefer Death Island. <laughs> you know, being the swimmers that we were, we figured we could make some escape. Anyway, come to find out, the commandant found out that we were in his penitentiary and he let us out. So you see, hey, praise to have friends in high places. But a week in, the, in a Costa Rican jail was not pleasant. Anyway, we, I stayed uh, a certain amount of time down there. And there was a guy named Murphy. We called him Murfito, but he was about this tall. Now, Murfito means little Murphy, so it was kind of a joke. It was huge. He was bigger than Barry. Anyway, <clears throat> Murphy and I decided we're going to take this exploration of the southern coast. We're just going to go until we didn't, couldn't go any further. So we'd swim around jagged cliffs and walk down beaches and through jungles just to see what we found. So we were sitting down there and taking a break, and I thought, this is paradise. But I still feel a nagging emptiness within me. I still feel a hollow, restless loneliness deep within me. I said, Murphy, it feels like I got this huge umbilical cord attached to me, and I can't get free of it. I don't know what it is. Murphy didn't have any solution. It was kind of depressing to be in paradise, to be where I wanted to, have all the freedom that I ever wished I could have, have no one tell me what to do, no one tell me where to go, be exactly where I wanted and still feel weighted down, inside empty and hollow. It wasn't too long after that, I met a guy from New Hampshire, because gringos stick together. They didn't know a lot of Spanish then, so it was like, it's good to speak English to somebody. So he was from New Hampshire. It's becoming spring. He needs to get back because he's got a business that only is seasonal and he's got a crack on it. But it's about a two-week drive back to New Hampshire. And I'm thinking, this is so odd that I am restless and bored in paradise. So he said, I got to fly back to New Hampshire. I said, I will drive your van back, because that's the only thing I had. And I was feeling like, you know, it's time for me to move on. Maybe, maybe I need the mountains. Maybe I need a change of geography. This isn't it. This did not do it for me. Maybe I need something else. So he gives me a map to his house, keys to his van. He flies out, 
and I am on my way to New Hampshire. And on the way, I pick up these three hippies who had been down in uh, South America. Now, they were ugly. They had hair down their knees. They were bad looking. But birds of a feather flocked together. I only had hair down to here, a little scroungy goat beard. So we're on our way. They're going to Texas. So they're glad. One ride all the way to Texas from Costa Rica. Can you believe it? Does that strike any rich? So on the way, we go up through Nicaragua, beautiful country. We could drive through it in those times. It was fabulous. Went to Honduras, and we met a couple of other guys that were hitchhiking from Peru, Peruvian guys. So I picked them up. We have six people in this van, and we're making our way up. We come in El Salvador. We're going out of El Salvador. Now, a lot of these little countries are real small. So you got to go out of one into another. They have a customs building on one side of the border and on the other side, another customs, because you're going out of one nation into another. So they have to inspect you going out of their nation to make sure you're not smuggling drugs or whatever. And then they have to inspect you coming in the other one. So we get, and El Salvador is very picky. Boy, they had to check everything. It's almost like strip shirts, a whole car, take everything out of it, which we were thankful. Because we got to throw all the junk away and trash, bananas and coconuts and things, and we got to restack it nicely, and we just figured they were helping us, so that was good. We go into Guatemala, it's a little rural border crossing, and they're not going to let us in because our hair is too long. You can't come in. Now, uh, Guatemala is very conservative. I don't know if it still is, but it certainly was then. You can't come into Guatemala because your hair is too long. And, and we said, look it. Here's a picture of Jesus right here. He had long hair. And they said, but you're not Jesus. <laughs> so it was siesta time. They just closed up the, the border and went home, left us there. So we sat there not knowing what happened for a couple hours. Finally, we decided, hey, we got to go back and find another way into Guatemala. We're kind of stuck here. So by this time, there had been a shift change in El Salvador. We come back in there. They don't know where we've been. What is this problem that we're having, Right. So fortunately, I got the proving guys there who explained to them that we were rock stars and they let us in. <clears throat> so we go about another 50 miles down the road to another border crossing. And this one is brand new. It's got huge barbed wire fences, it's got gun turrets, it's got cement walls around the whole thing, and, and it's huge. So I'm thinking, they wouldn't let us through little country border. They're not letting me through this one, right? Now, by accident, we went in the wrong way. Gringos, right? Went in the wrong way. Every bell, every whistle went off. Every turret, every gun, every officer. I know, we're going to jail. We're going to die in rotten Guatemala or never getting out, right? And we're just going, stupido, gringo, stupido, gringo. So they thought it was kind of funny. And they actually stamped our passports and let us in. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> yeah, it's, we're just dumb and just let us in, okay? So anyway, we're going out of Guatemala. This is going somewhere. Stick with me, okay? Don't get lost. We're going out of Guatemala. We're all lined up there. Six of us. Three of these horribly looking guys. Two proving guys and me. And, and, the, and we got all of our passports lined up. The lady, the lady is yelling at us. She's just yelling at us. I'm thinking, why is she so rude to us? And she's just saying all sorts of stuff. And I'm going, what, what's wrong here? And I realize that she thinks we want in. She's not letting us in to Guatemala, right? 
She thinks, on the way in. Because she can't believe we're in the country. Looking like we do. Right? So, when I realize that she thinks we want in, we're going, hey, ah, we're just yelling back and forth. We're screaming at each other, calling everybody names and the whole thing, right? She's in furious. She's furious about this whole thing. Finally, I say, listen, we want out. Boom, 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 boom. Get out of here. Never come back to Guatemala. We never want to see you kind around here again. No problem. <laughs> now, there had been a soccer war. So usually the custom stations are right close to each other. You got one into another one. But in this case, they'd been shot up. So they were two miles, they were a mile apart on each side, two miles apart. Okay? So in this two mile interval, we see some more hitchhikers, we pick them up. These three American girls. They're going to Mexico City. Pile in, come on. It's a bus. It's siesta time. It's in the afternoon. We pull into Mexico and Sergeant Garcia is sound asleep in front of the adobe aduana hut, the custom hut. He's got the two strips of bullets, his hat down. He's got the old rifle that Pancho Villa had. We land, spaceship, outcome nine people. He cannot believe it. We go into the customs room, and all five of them all lined up there. No es posible. You can't come into Mexico. Why can't we come into Mexico? Because the van doesn't belong to you. I said, well, that doesn't matter. Look, I've been to, to uh, <clears throat> Nicaragua and Honduras and blah, blah, blah. Nobody cares. We're, I'm driving it back to the guy who owns it. They say, sorry, you cannot come into Mexico. So I said, what do I got to do? You got to go back to Guatemala. and get an affidavit from the owner that says you can drive this van. And I thought, there's no way they're gonna let me back in Guatemala. <laughs> so we were stuck there for hours, worrying about what to do. Finally, I realized it dawned on me, this is Mexico, Miselito Lindo, La Mordida, the bribe. I said, Sergeant, how much money do you want? Would $20 be enough? He said, yes, that would be fine. <laughs> Went back into the customs office. They all lined up again. Now it's mi amigo. <laughs> in we go. Mexico. Finally get myself to New Hampshire, live up there in the woods in a little log cabin back in the Appalachian Mountains, five miles out of this one little light town, two miles down a dirt road or so, and a quarter mile hike into this place, living back there, having a great time. It's so rural back there, you feel like you'd see Sasquatch. <laughs> they have berries and all sorts of things. Berries, not, you know what I mean, right? Blackberries, blueberries, raspberries. It was beautiful. I learned a lot back there. I learned that porcupines climb trees. <laughs> Do you know porcupines climb trees? Yeah. What do you see one up there looking down at you? I just hope they don't jump. <laughs> Kamikaze porcupines. <laughs> anyway, stayed there for three months, and I realized that it didn't matter where I went. I couldn't shake this emptiness. I couldn't shake this sense of 
dissatisfaction. I just couldn't shake this sense of what is really going on in the world and life. What is life all about? I'd been in the south, I'd been in the north, I'd been in the east, I'd been in the west, I lived in the ocean, I lived in the mountains, and it's still there. Everybody's the same, everything's the same, and now I finally realized that life was meaningless, that there was nothing to life. And I was making plans to go to Alaska, the last great frontier. I thought if I could get to Alaska, I'd find it there. But then I realized, you know what? I haven't found it yet. I'm not going to find it anywhere. There's nothing to find. So I had this dark secret that I had learned in all this, this traveling that really life meant nothing and there was no answer and we're just here to go for the gusto. So I figured I'm going back to Los Angeles. Got to back to Los Angeles, Venice, where I'm from. And I figured my life philosophy would just be go for the gusto. Party until you drop. Every kind of illegal and immoral kind of thing. That's just the lifestyle of the hippie. Right? And even that's just a drag. <laughs> really, it is. You know? Try and cheer yourself up. So I got involved in, in paddling outrigger canoes. Anybody here paddle outrigger canoes? Yeah, they got teams up and down the coast here, those Hawaii Five O kind of boats. They got a six men team and they paddle. Now, back in those days I was doing carpentry work, much stronger than I am now. <laughs> Mere shadow of my former self. But for some reason, this little team we had thought that we were supposed to win. So we were actually the third boat in all of California our very first year. So we were chosen to go with another with our first boat to race in Molokai uh, outrigger canoe race, which we would paddle from Molokai Island to Oahu. Now it's about 50 miles or so, and Diamond Head looks like a pinpoint <laughs> all day. How come it doesn't get any bigger? <laughs> I mean, you're out in the middle of the world, right? When you're out in the middle of those two islands, you're out in the middle of the planet, never getting any bigger. We actually did pretty good that year. And the next year, we were the, the champions of California. We were the top boat. We'd won the big races, the long races, the regattas. So we went to represent California in a race in Kona. It was about a 20-mile race, Cap Captain Cook's Monument to Kailua Kona. We did pretty good on that. And the, at the end of that uh, race, there's always these big parties, right? Big hoopla. They cook pigs and all sorts of things. It's actually a lot of fun, but what should have been a joyous occasion was really kind of depressing for me. It was just like, it was so odd. It was like, I almost felt like crying for some reason because this, this restless emptiness that I, you know, I couldn't get a hold of was just like, gosh, I should be so happy. But it's just there. And so being the happy-go-lucky guy I am, I cheered myself up, put on my happy face, went back in, and, uh, you know, join the party. So my plan was to go visit some friends of mine in Kauai. So we went island hopping, three of us. Ended up in Kauai. There were some old party goers from back here. So this is going to be great. I had my flashlight full of marijuana that had grown. <laughs> but we didn't smoke leaves anymore. That was for poor people. We only smoked buds that I handpicked myself and my own plants in my backyard. 
We called them Mexican tomatoes. <laughs> anyway, my plan was to see Kauai, to see the waterfalls, go to Hanalei and up to Polahali and Waimea Canyon, the whole thing. Have a great time, tour guide's car, the whole thing. We get there, girls miss at the airport, and they got these long dresses on, which is quite unusual for Hawaii. And they had this bumper sticker on their car, the king is coming. And I said, you didn't have to announce my arrival. <laughs> now I know I said the wrong thing. I can just feel it right down my backbone. Not the right thing to say. Right? Now these girls have been changed. Okay? They wouldn't even let us stay in the house with them. We didn't understand it. We were nice boys. Right? They said something about, it's a bad witness. I couldn't relate to that language. They made us sleep in the car for a whole week. A car. You know, they're too small. Your knees are crunched up, one leg on the steering wheel, the head on the, the, the armrest, eaten alive by mosquitoes every night. You wake up in the morning black and blue from trying to kill them. You never get them. And all week long, they're witnessing to me, telling me about Jesus. Jesus this and Jesus that. I've just about had it with this Jesus story. Me. I was obnoxious and mean to them, if you can believe it. Because, you know, I was raised in a Christian environment. I knew more stories about Jesus than they did. They tell me a story about Jesus, I'd tell them a story about Jesus. They'd tell me one, I'd tell them one. I knew more about it than they did. And I said, but they're so different about it. It, it means something to them. To me, it's just stories. It's just Jesus, yes, died on the cross with sin, rose again from the third day, suffered under Pontius Pilate, virgin birth, whole thing. I could repeat it. It meant nothing to me. But they were so insistent about it. it was, they were so changed. It, was, it impacted them in such a way that was so noticeable that it intrigued me. So I was there Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. We're going to go camp out at Polahali Beach on the dry side of Kauai. It's a huge Sahara Desert beach. We meet these guys in the campsite. They got warm sake and primo beer. Now, you don't mix sake and primo, okay? It's a deadly combination. I woke up the next morning. My brain was leaking out my ears. My head spinning, railroad trains crashing in my head. I said, I got to walk it off. It's cool in the morning, Hawaii. I said, I'm going to walk down the beach. The beach is probably a half a mile. This is, this is the Sahara Desert Beach, okay? Get down there. I just collapse, fall asleep. I wake up. It's high noon. It's a million degrees. <laughs> the sand is like lava. There's mirages. Oh, I can't, I can hardly see. I think, I think, you know, I could die out here. I said, wouldn't that be cool? I died in the beach from a hangover. That would be so great. Somehow your brain gets so warped by this that you think the strangest and weirdest things. But I thought, you know, if I can get to that booth, this little thought of a booth, I know there's water in there, and it was so hot, the heat just coming off the sand, the whole thing, just draining my body. I figured, you know, if I stop for a moment, 
I'm, that's gonna bake. I'm not gonna make it. Well, I did make it, okay. <laughs> so I said, you know, I'm gonna go to church with them. I'm gonna go find out what makes them tick because they're weird. <laughs> so Sunday comes, go to church. It's a little tiny church, can't be even bigger than just this little section over here by the prayer room. And it's a little white missionary church in Kalaheo. And there's probably 25 people in it, maybe. So I sit way back in the corner, as far as you can get from the front of the church, okay? On that side. And my eyes are still pretty sore. Every hair in my body is kind of sore. And... They start playing this, this hillbilly music, this I'll, I'll fly away, oh glory. They had tambourines and guitars, and everyone's waving their hands, you know. And I said, I, I've never seen anything like this before. <laughs> this was almost too much for me. I said, These people are really weird. <laughs> but I thought, you know, if you're going to go to church, you might as well enjoy it, right? It's, it's okay, it's just, this is just too much. So then, this guy comes up, opens up a Bible, starts reading from it. And I said, now wait a minute, you're not supposed to read from the Bible in church. You get the book, tells you when to stand, when to kneel, when to sit, and that kind of thing. And I said, there's a real problem here. This guy was, so I'm sitting way in the back, and I just, I feel this urge to come to the front of the altar. I'm going, I'm not going up the front of that church. What do my friends think? And then this little voice would say to me, I'm having this conversation, it's kind of an odd thing, right? This give and take. This little voice would say, you never did care what your friends thought. And I thought, well, that's true. <laughs> and I say, well, I haven't traveled as far as I want to travel. And the little voice would say, you've traveled enough to know that travel won't satisfy you. That's true. <laughs> and I say, you know, uh, uh, heroin. Uh, I need to take heroin. Heroin is what I'm looking for. I just, I just haven't crossed the line over yet. I've done everything but that. And I, I know that if, if I hold out for, for some more drugs, that'll, that's what I really need. And the voice said, you know that you've done enough drugs to realize that drugs aren't the answer. I said, you got a point there. <laughs> just went on and on like this, right? Finally, I realized that why don't, why don't, I, do, why don't I do Jesus, right? What's wrong with Jesus? It was just, I knew it was Jesus. And I, and I finally said to myself, this is, I'm going to do this. But because of my training, you don't just get up in church and walk in front of the church, right? So now I'm sitting there going, now what do I do? I'm stuck back here. I feel like I got to get to the front of this church for some reason. This is really what I got to do. So finally a guy closes the Bible and says, look, if anybody wants more of Jesus, come on up here to the front of the church. I thought, I'm on my way. So I got two friends next to me, traveling companions. And I said, did you hear what the man said? Let's go to the front of the church and have Jesus. <laughs> Come on. They got their grips on the back of the pew. 
They're not moving. I'm pushing them. I said, did you hear him? Come on, we can have Jesus. Let's get up in front of the church. <laughs> pushing them. They're not moving. So finally, I have to crawl over the pew. Pews. I got my leg over the pew, and I'm thinking, I hope they don't mind me walking all over their pews. I have to go to the front. So I get over, every head in the church. Whoosh. So I start walking up the middle aisle, and for some reason, I just begin to weep. Quite out of character for me. Carpenter, hardened criminal. <laughs> I just crying. And I said, I hope they don't mind me doing this. You know, I feel kind of out of place. I'm the only one going up there. And so then I get up there, and I do the thing I've been trained to do. It's kneel down. And I just, I just sense a cleanliness. I, I believe. I felt faith. I believed in the Bible. I believed in Jesus. I could just feel the cord broken. I could feel a weight. Like, I can't believe how light I feel. I could float. And then I, then I thought, praise God. I lifted my hands. I said, praise God. And then I went, uh-oh. <laughs> now what have I done? <laughs> 21 years ago. Can you believe it? <laughs> I'm still happy about Jesus. I'm so glad. Every day I'm still glad. Because you know what? I've, I, I, I'm older now. I have 25 years of life to look at, and I've seen the people that I was in associate with, association with in the drug world, and a lot of them are still tangled. I got friends that are dead. I got friends that are in prison. I got friends who have lost their families. I got friends whose lives are destroyed by drugs. And I'm the weird one. <laughs> you figure that out. I am the white sheep of the family. It's so strange to me. And I'm so grateful every day for the testimony of Jesus. So, with that, let us pray, shall we? I want us to just appreciate a little bit more. Not forget that your sins have been forgiven. Let's pray for a minute, shall we, church? Lord, we thank you for this evening. We thank you for this testimony that you've given many of us. I've heard so many testimonies, Lord, from Alan, from Barry, and from so many different people, George. and Lord, we all have different stories about how you're working in our lives. And you continue to work year after year. We're grateful for that. I pray, Lord, that if someone has tarnished that testimony, that they would take it out and shine it up. Lord, if it's laying in a corner somewhere, that they would pull it out. Remember the sins that they have had cleansed. Lord, we ask you to touch our hearts right now. Because I want to ask you, if you're here tonight, just like they asked me, do you want more of Jesus? Do you want Jesus in your life? It's that simple. 
It takes it out of the book and puts it in your life. It's no more just stories. It's no more just words. It's no more just some myth or legends. It is true. God has been touching people for thousands of years. It is not a fad. It's not a new thing. This is reality. This is what Jesus came to do. It's the testimony concerning the forgiveness of sins in Christ. And if you have never said, Jesus, I want you in my life. I want to give you that opportunity right now. Maybe you've gone to church your whole life. Maybe you said prayers to you. Maybe you've done, maybe you were baptized. But you've never personally said, Jesus, I want you. You will never find what you're looking for anywhere else. They're dead end roads. They're dead ends. And you can find the road himself. The Lord Jesus. I'm going to ask you just to say, that's what I want to do. Just raise your hand wherever you are. You said, that's what I want to do. I don't care what anybody else says. I don't care what my friends say. I want Jesus. Anyone here tonight? Anyone here? Just raise your hand real high so we can see it. Anyone at all? Don't fight God. Don't put it off. Don't wait for another day. Don't wait for a better chance. If you hear that little voice speaking to you, say, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to obey that call. Anyone at all tonight? I'm going to give you a moment. How many of you have a testimony of Jesus tonight? Raise your hand. Declare that. Say, I have a testimony of Jesus. For how many of you is it a forgotten thing? And you need it to be freshened. How many want it to be a new thing, a fresh thing? All right. You got a song for us, Alan? Alan's got something for us. Let's stand, shall we? And let's present ourselves before the Lord. Let's ask the Lord to renew us with a new sense of urgency to impart the testimony that we have.